Hello, and welcome to another edition of Ask the Professor, a crowd-funded, crowd-driven feature where we respond to your questions and comments on everything from history to theology to culture to political philosophy, all those things that matter to us in our common life. And today's is a comment, comes from Matthew, picking up on something that I'd said in a earlier Ask the Professor about the University of Alberta deciding to give David Suzuki an honorary degree at this particularly fraught time. And responding to a comment that I made, he said, I don't think modern governments are vulnerable to the utilitarian argument. I think they are manifestations of it. And my short answer is, I believe that you're right. My longer answer is I'm not sure that this is a distinction that makes a whole lot of difference. But there's no question that in the English-speaking world, at one time we had governments that were sharply limited in what they could do because it was right that they should be able to do certain things and wrong that they should be able to do others. They should be able to protect citizens from force and fraud, but they should not be able themselves to menace citizens' lives, liberties, or property. That was the idea behind Magna Carta. That's why Parliament evolved. That was what was behind the American Revolution. It was the constitutional settlement in Britain in the 19th century. And when Canada was created with a constitution similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom, it was how everybody involved in Confederation understood the government that they were creating. It was meant to be based essentially on natural law. Humans have trouble interpreting natural law, as I commented last time, but that doesn't free us from the obligation to try, including when we write political constitutions and try and decide what is it right that government should be able to do and how, and what should government be prevented from doing and how. But in recent years, increasingly, that is not how we have understood government. Governments were placed under popular control an astonishingly long time ago. Do not think popular sovereignty was an invention of the American founding fathers. They certainly didn't think so. They were trying to preserve a British heritage they thought was under siege from a usurping executive in London. It goes back to Magna Carta and even before. The famous British common law arises from the people. The law is what the British had consented to live under for centuries before there was such a thing as a legislature and when there was very little statute law. And frankly, we have far too much statute law today. But over time, people started to believe that popular control of government was not a mechanism for keeping it small, but a way of legitimizing everything that it did. I mentioned the 19th century settlement. Following the American Revolution, there was widespread recognition in Britain that Washington and Jefferson and Adams and that crowd had had a legitimate point, that the executive was becoming too strong. In fact, a resolution was passed by the British House of Commons during the American Revolutionary War saying that the power of the crown had increased, was increasing, and ought to be diminished. An astonishing admission by the one branch of the British government that was chosen directly by the people that the American revolutionaries had it right. Small surprise, the British didn't win the war, whether it was technically winnable or not. They ended up, in large measure, convinced that they were in the wrong, so they threw in the towel as a matter of principle. And what a good thing for them to do. But in the 19th century, and it seems like the most innocent thing in the world, how could you criticize it? In the early to, you know, first third of the 19th century, there was a lot of pressure in Britain to expand the franchise, to give the vote to more people. And how could you say no? The old British system was extremely lopsided. It gave far too much power to the country nobility and far too little to working people, particularly in the newer cities that had grown up outside of the old medieval guild towns. And so you got these reform acts. But 
by giving more and more people the vote, you increasingly succumbed to the idea that the purpose of government was utilitarian, to secure the greatest good for the greatest number, as it was understood at that moment by the greatest number. And there was a very, an eerily perceptive comment by a man named Samuel Warren. He was a novelist as well as a political commentator. And when the first reform bill passed, he called it a bill to give everybody everything. It incarnated the idea that rather than the purpose of the vote being to send legislators to London, or later to Washington, to the state capital, to the provincial capital, and to Ottawa, who would restrain the executive branch and its presumptions and keep the state small, the purpose of the vote was to unlock the public treasury, to send someone to the capital who would come back with stuff for you. And it was a slow but increasingly irresistible process that has accelerated over the course of the last nearly 200 years now. And to the point that it is almost incomprehensible today to talk in Canada about the fact that the purpose of legislators is not to back the blue team, the red team, or the orange team so they can get executive power and give their supporters what they want, but rather to restrain the executive branch from doing a lot of things it shouldn't be doing at all. Because the old natural law understanding, government exists to prevent force and fraud, these are duties that it has been properly given, one might say given by God, and the mechanisms of government are intended to ensure that it does not do more than that, but does do that competently, and that voting is a tool to that end, to an understanding that government is a device by which people can secure whatever it is that they want. The greatest good for the greatest number, and in terms of mechanism, that what constitutes the greatest good is not some understanding passed down through the centuries that would be recognizable to Edward Cook or to the to Stephen Langton, the prime mover behind Magna Carta, the Archbishop of Canterbury, or indeed to Alfred the Great, but whatever people currently feel like they want. They've got an itch, government is a back scratcher. And in that sense, whether government is a manifestation of the utilitarian argument or vulnerable to it, I think doesn't matter a whole lot. The problem is, whichever one it is, Modern government is utilitarian. It doesn't respect natural law. And therefore, in fact, it tries to do things it cannot do, and it does them badly. It frustrates people. It diminishes our natural wealth, and it divides us. Natural law was right. That's the whole point about natural law. It's right. Uh, utilitarianism isn't an alternative way of being right. There is only one way of being right. And to the extent that utilitarianism contradicts natural law, it is actually wrong and harmful. And that, if that sounds a little too abstract, just consider how frustrating how indebted, how bloated, how overextended is government today, and how did it happen? And I put it to you that it happened because in the early 19th century, in the coolest, most rational, and apparently level-headed way you could imagine, it did indeed succumb to the utilitarian argument, or perhaps turned into it. Either way, we're in a heap of trouble, and the only way out is to get back to the natural law understanding. If you're enjoying Ask the Professor, and you'd like to help us keep it going, this URL will let you submit questions, which we need. And if you click here, you can go to my website if you're not already a backer and make a one-time or monthly pledge because I am dependent on your support, not only for this feature, but for all the work that I do. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time.